Hello and welcome to another episode of Dawncast. I'm Di Lee. And I'm Cathy Ngo. And today we've got Wes Lambert, CEO of Restaurant and Catering, joining us. Uh, for nearly two decades, Wes has honed his skills in networking, uh, stakeholder uh, management uh, and reporting governance and much more in the hospitality sector. So Wes, thank you so much for making the time to join Dawncast this afternoon. Thanks for joining us, Wes. You're welcome. Look, uh, I would love to actually get your insights into the whole industry at the moment uh, as a result of COVID. Obviously, it has had a huge impact on restaurants uh, and, and, and businesses in the catering sector. Can you give us a bit of a snapshot? So the accommodation and food services industry, of which restaurants falls into, was the hardest hit industry in Australia. Uh, at its peak, the industry lost 441,000 jobs, of which about 300,000 have not yet uh, come back online. And at the bottom of the revenue cycle, uh, at the peak of the pandemic, uh, Australia's restaurants were down 60% year over year, which is, which is dramatic. Uh, and since that uh, peak in May, uh, the industry has not fully recovered. Uh, mainly due to uh, restrictions in states like Victoria uh, and some in New South Wales and Queensland, as well as the closed uh, domestic borders and the closed international borders, uh, which uh, is normally where most of Australia makes the um, cream of the year. It makes the uh, rev extra revenue that it uses during the low seasons of the autumn and winter to survive. Uh, we're not going to see that with no international tourists. We're not going to see that with any uh, domestic travelers uh, and certainly uh, expecting that the industry will remain down anywhere between uh, five and uh, 40%, depending upon where in the country that you are. Wow. So you're saying like almost still 300,000 or so people are still not back uh, or not working in that industry mm, at, at this point in time. 75% unemployed at the moment. So while Victoria remains in lockdown, meaning that there is only takeaway and delivery in the accommodation and food services industry, uh, there's 20,000 uh, restaurants, cafes, takeaway businesses, uh, coffee shops in Victoria, which is uh, considered to be about a third of the restaurant industry and a fifth of the entire accommodation and food services industry. Uh, and those employees, especially in businesses like accommodation hotels, clubs, pubs, casinos, uh, they're not working at this point. So uh, as JobKeeper begins to taper off at the end of September, uh, while Victoria remains under lockdown and then uh, outdoor dining only until the end of November at least, uh, we certainly are in a situation where uh, our industry will continue to be depressed. Uh, and we do expect that anywhere between 10 and 20% of the workforce will remain stood down. Uh, and as the uh, spring and summer seasons uh, come and those businesses do not get the spike in revenue that they normally see, uh, we'll certainly see some year-over-year -year percentages uh, that are quite drastic. Uh, we saw in July, for example, that Western Australia was down 22% year-over-year, uh, while the previous month it was coming more to even, which means that uh, because Western Australia is not getting those domestic visitors and international tourists, as well as uh, international students, 
uh, it's certainly uh, quite a bit down from the year before. And we're going to see that a lot in our industry where you might think that they're busy when you go on a, a Thursday or Friday or Saturday night, but uh, the, relative to the previous year, they are not. What does this all mean? I mean, for you, you, you represent um, re uh, restaurant and catering, represent you know, those in that sector. What does that mean for that sector now? So in any given year, uh, according to the ABS, uh, in the entry exit report, which is published uh, in February of each year, uh, normally 18% of the ABN numbers in uh, accommodation and food service exit the industry, but luckily 20% uh, uh, new ABNs are created, meaning that uh, at least for the past couple of years, the industry's had about a 2% net growth. The problem is, is in fiscal 21 or calendar 20, we're not going to see the entry of the 20% to offset the standard 18% drop. We expect that an additional 10 to 20% will exit. So you may see in the entry exit report come next February, and most certainly the one that comes out in February 2022, we may see an exit percentage in accommodation food service 20, 30%, which is dramatic. What's the restaurant and catering's role, um, association role in, in all the, the restaurants and, and catering services at the moment? I know it sounds really obvious, but like for, for people who aren't aware of what you guys do in the industry, like what are some of the things that we need to know? So there are a few peak uh, industry associations. You might hear politicians saying the peaks, uh, or the industry associations uh, on TV. Uh, when they speak about the peaks, they're speaking about industry associations that represent the most businesses. So for example, uh, restaurant and catering is a peak because we represent the interests of uh, over 47,000 businesses pre-COVID. Uh, the AHA is a peak, clubs is a peak, CPA Australia, uh, the NRA, the ARA, uh, the uh, AMA, the medical associations, the pharmacy guilds, uh, the government calls us peaks because of the massive amount of businesses that we represent. And what does it mean to represent? Uh, it means that we fight on behalf of the industry in lobbying to council, state and federal governments. It means that we uh, lobby the uh, attorney general uh, about IR uh, and fight on behalf of the restaurant award. It means that when things like JobKeeper or the mandatory landlord code of practice uh, or any federal or even state-based stimulus programs like uh, payroll tax abatements and the Retail Leases Act in each state uh, related to uh, adhering to the mandatory code of practice, as well as the takeaway liquor initiatives that have been instilled and training, uh, hospitality training like Cert uh, 3s and commercial cookery down to your food handler or food safety certificates. Uh, we are the peak body that is responsible for negotiating with the government uh, for most of the legislation and the rules around all of those things. So are you, as, as a peak body now, what are the challenges for you uh, in terms of representing your members or the, those restaurant and catering in this period? It must, they must, there must be some really challenging uh, you know, situation. It must be a challenging situation for you to represent them. Well, we have an eight-speed economy, and uh, if, if you're surprised by saying that, we have, eight, we have eight states and territories, and they all have different rules, regulations, stimulus packages, uh, and restrictions in relation to COVID. Uh, oh, there are gosh. some states 
are coming to uh, nearly no restrictions, and there's other states that are still under lockdown. And so from a federal point of view, uh, when you argue and lobby for JobKeeper, which is a federal program, uh, unfortunately, it's not always one size fits all. Uh, however, we have to argue for the lowest common denominator, meaning the lockdown state that's in the most peril. We have to argue that JobKeeper needs to continue as a national program because of the weakest link, because of the states that are facing the most uh, difficult situation. And so we talk about Victoria. Is, so we talk about Victoria here. That's the weakest state and the weakest link at the moment. Is that right? I feel sorry for when, Victoria. <laughs> when it comes to accommodation of food service and uh, how our industry is tracking, yes, as well as the restrictions uh, and the culture uh, of vibrant dining that uh, exists in Melbourne and in Victoria uh, is, is uh, at peril of being um, decimated. Uh, and it may never return the way that it was. Oh, uh, ultimately, because of the eight-speed economy, because we're dealing with eight premiers and chief ministers, uh, it is difficult sometimes to get everyone on the same page. So you may be lobbying one position in one state and lobbying an entirely different position in another state uh, in relation to where you are on each state's uh, timeline in terms of COVID. So that can sometimes be difficult because you may be collaborating with one state on a decision in relation to uh, a plan that they have because it, you know that it's part of a uh, slow and steady return to normal. Uh, and you may be arguing the position in, in a different way, using a different method uh, in another state because it's much further behind or because it sees things dramatically differently. Are there any common threads uh, coming from all of those eight states, eight economies, uh, when you're hearing from restaurant owners or people working in this industry? Uh, is, are there any common themes sort of coming out at the moment, uh, approaching your um, association to do or to work on for them? Certainly, uh, they're all um, in the same boat when it comes to uh, industrial relations. So we are on the industry roundtables that were called by the Attorney General. Uh, to simplify the restaurant, hospitality, and retail award. Uh, and we're making great headway in those areas. Uh, certainly, each of the states um, is, are all subjected to the same uh, restaurant award of, in the Fair Work system. Uh, ultimately, uh, each state, while it is uh, in JobKeeper, uh, certainly each state is returning and recovering at a different pace. Uh, so we get different uh, queries and different questions and certainly different positions from members and, and industry at large in each state uh, in relation to that, uh, as well as leases. Uh, it certainly has been a yeah. very colourful and different scenario yeah. in each state in relation to how landlords are uh, negotiating with their tenants, uh, from zero negotiations, which are leading to cases, to some landlords just immediately waived rent during the COVID-19 crisis, uh, and those tenants are certainly benefiting from that. Well, as you mentioned IR earlier being a very big issue and obviously because of um, JobKeeper, but there seems to be also a lot of news every day about underpayments, um, which I know that a lot of employers, they might not even be aware that they're doing it and kind of like the compounding effect of COVID at the moment must be like enormous. But what's your take on that? Because like every single time I open up Sydney Morning Herald or the Daily Telegraph, there's always something in there. They're really big employers, so I'm kind of like scratching my head, like how can you kind of not know? So what, what's your take on that, Wes? So when the Fair Work Act was passed in 2009 and the modern awards, uh, all 122 of them were instilled in 2010, 
Uh, there were supposed to be uh, four yearly reviews of each of the awards to ensure that they were fit for purpose uh, and that the verbiage was in line with technologies and, and all the things of the day. Uh, we're in nearly 2021 and uh, we are working on the complexities of certain awards uh, that are written in a very complex way. For example, the restaurant award when it comes to classifications uh, and breaks, uh, there are many cases where classifications of employees and meal times and breaks, they are subject to human uh, interaction, meaning a human has to determine the level of the employee and what level that that employee is performing at any time of day, which can change throughout the day, as well as uh, if an employee is not given a break when they were told they were going to be given a break, uh, you owe that employee 150% until such time as they take a break or until their shift ends. Now, you cannot software those up because they require human intervention. And so when you go back to, for example, the Woolies uh, underpayment, which was uh, unintentional, uh, the nature of the managers who were underpaid for their overnight shifts uh, was basically uh, allegedly a simple error of no one took into account that overnight shifts were always penalty time, even if it was the normal shift of the employee, and that during annualizations that was not taken into account in the uh, annualizations of their salary. Now, this isn't written anywhere. A human would have had the wherewithal to understand that even though it might be your normal shift uh, as a manager in a business to work the second or third shift, it is still penalty time when it comes to the Fair Work Act and that particular retail award. And so that's kind of when you try to marry up the human angles <laughs> of uh, an award and software and the perils that uh, can befall that, uh, oftentimes there are unintentional underpayments, which are typically what you read about. So, uh, so, 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 so it's human errors. So you're saying that we need to allow for human errors in the interpretation of an act like like the, the, the IR Act in terms of pay, payment. Like, I mean, there's always human errors in everything, isn't it? Yeah. Correct. So if you allow, uh, if you put anything in an act that requires a human to make a determination, then you will never have a software that can actually uh, be able to ensure that 100 not a percent less than that of the time that you have actually accurately paid. Um, ultimately, uh, we advocate for 100% compliance with the Fair Work Act and the Restaurant Award, uh, but we also realize that when an underpayment occurs, it is important to understand if it's intentional or unintentional, uh, and if it's intentional, throw the book at them. But if it's unintentional, uh, we certainly hope and we uh, advocate and lobby to the Fair Work Ombudsman as well as to the Attorney General uh, that we need a pathway for businesses not to be named and shamed uh, if, if it's an administrative error. For example, if you underpay your taxes in an administrative way to the ATO, they are bound by law not to name and shame you. Uh, mm -hmm. They give you all the opportunity in the world to fix and refile your tax return and pay any uh, due taxes, and they don't make you enter into an enforceable undertaking. They don't name and shame your business. Mm -hmm. uh, they certainly do not uh, force businesses out of business. Now, last time I checked, the ATO is as integral a part of the government as the Fair Work Commission. Absolutely. And the Attorney General's Office and uh, all of the requisite departments. 
And so we feel like that they should be treating all departments and all citizens equally. And if it's administrative uh, and certainly not intentional, uh, it should just go down a path of correction and refiling and uh, treat it the same as you would refiling your tax return. You need, I think you need an AI, um, artificial intelligence in, the, in, in, in fixing all of that, I, I believe. Um, but with the JobKeeper, I mean, continue on that, that uh, underpayment. Um, so I, I've also heard of stories whereby the employer get the JobKeeper, but then they don't pass that on to the employee. Um, uh, obviously, you know, you know, obviously a lot of restaurants and services they do also have cash in hands as well. Especially, what a, how do you also engage with um, businesses that are of non-English speaking backgrounds? Because a lot of them are still working from the, uh, I believe, um, and especially if we're talking about the southwest of Sydney, a lot of family businesses are still run on a very much cash economy. So COVID has really educated them in terms of going online, but not a lot of them are actually using online as well uh, or not digital. So is that a, a space that uh, your organisation is also looking at or would consider to take on board as well? So your question is quite broad. Uh, you started with JobKeeper and oh, yes. not, not, <laughs> passing on, not passing that on to employees. Uh, you are unable as a business to get JobKeeper for your employees if you're not paying it, meaning the ATO uh, has, with single-touch payroll, the ATO knows instantaneously uh, what you're collecting from them into your BAS statement and what you're paying out uh, through your single-touch payroll. So it is almost impossible to collect JobKeeper on behalf of employees and not pay it out, uh, mainly because they had to sign a form that they wanted to get JobKeeper from your business. Mm -hmm. So it would be almost impossible for a business to do that. Next is uh, cash in hand. Well, there is no more cash. Uh, cash has been highly discouraged uh, in the COVID-19 economy. Uh, in fact, I don't know anyone that carries cash uh, anymore, and it's it has become increasingly more difficult to pay with cash. Uh, many businesses are refusing to take cash. So um, ultimately, we do expect that uh, as the COVID normal is a more cashless economy, uh, that those businesses that are doing cash in hand uh, will move to a more um, correct and proper way to pay the award. Uh, with single touch payroll that now we are way out of the grace period, if you file a BAS, uh, which is let's say a million dollars in a year, if you're not paying out two to $400,000 in payroll, the ATO is gonna come knocking at your door with the Fair Work Ombudsman uh, and auditors. So t time is running out for businesses uh, that are paying cash in hand. We also do recognize that it is a cultural norm uh, to pay cash as well as underpay uh, let me be the first to tell you that we do not advocate that in any way. Uh, and in fact, uh, we have heard of many uh, businesses um, around businesses that pay cash, dobbing them in, uh, as well as the Fair Work Ombudsman targeting uh, certain neighborhoods in certain areas uh, for audits and uh, certainly catching out the, the cash payers and the underpayers. However, the solution to this is education. And as you mentioned, uh, there are many uh, small family businesses where English is not the first language, it might not even be the second language. Uh, we're working very closely 
uh, for example, with the New South Wales government uh, on getting um, many written uh, rules and regulations translated into multiple languages uh, to ensure that uh, all of the of Australians, uh, no matter what their first language is, fully understands their rights and obligations. Uh, but it is very important to understand that we would never advocate for any cash payment whatsoever. Uh, and very soon, um, cash is going to be you know, a thing of the past uh, and certainly not easy to, uh, to pay your employees that way. And I have been in and out of hospitality in all aspects. Uh, I worked uh, in that fast food restaurant for that summer. Uh, and then it, later in high school, I waited tables. Uh, and in university, I waited tables and then went away in the military and came back. Um, and when I graduated, I was an investment banker in restaurant capital and then got in uh, venue management and then venue ownership and then pub ownership and then uh, came to Australia and took the first full service restaurant group uh, unlisted public. We had 100 shareholders, asset compliant. Uh, we owned uh, Kingsley's Chop House and I partnered with Jamie Oliver and brought Jamie's Italian to Australia, New Zealand. Oh, we, right. we sold out, sold that out to the Keystone Group, uh, and I had acted as a founding director uh, as well as the uh, financial controller of that entity. We sold out to the Keystone Group. I moved back to the U.S. Uh, and was the CFO of a, um, a holding company that was in uh, clothing manufacturing as well as uh, some other small businesses uh, and did that for nearly seven years. Uh, and moved back to Australia to uh, run restaurant and catering uh, and help to save hospitality one venue at a time. Wow. <laughs> what is it about the industry that you love? Because you've been in it for so long. Sounds like you started flipping hamburgers since you were 14. Have you been there or young, a young teenager? Because you said it's been 30 something years. <laughs> so I, I just turned 45. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I, I am, my background is Native American and my ancestors live well into their 90s and 100s. Uh, and uh, on a recent physical, my doctor told me that I had the blood work of a 30 year old. So oh, wow. uh, certainly uh, happy that um, my, uh, I, I look younger than I am. <laughs> okay. uh, it, it helps in, in negotiations uh, that I have that 30 plus years of experience. Uh, look, I, I, you asked why I love the industry. Uh, it's in my blood. Uh, I, I was never in the back of house. I was never a chef. Uh, you know, I, I barely cook, but uh, I certainly understand uh, the front of house uh, and the operations as well as the scalability of the hospitality industry. Uh, and I've honed my skills over the past year as a lobbyist to the government, uh, utilizing uh, my communication skills uh, as well as uh, I'm a CPA, a fellow of the Governance Institute and a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Uh, and have started and run multiple companies. And so I know the pain that uh, restaurateurs are feeling from a business point of view uh, and can certainly provide them with uh, the well-needed advice to help them get through uh, the crisis to survive and to thrive. So, you know, people in being in, you know, owning a restaurant or catering business, it's because of the food. Um, for you, what is it about that industry? So I know you love food. We, other than okra, we know that. <laughs> but what? But what is it about uh, that that space, that industry, that really, um, you know, got made you stay there for, or continue to be involved, and then growing um, through that space? 
it's the hospitality. It's that personal connection with customers, with patrons, with staff, with the wider community. Uh, every, almost every memory that you have through your life will have some aspect of food, some aspect of hospitality, some aspect of restaurants or catering. You know, you look at, you know, we all have birthday cakes on our birthday. Uh, we often go to restaurants uh, for milestones like birthdays, anniversaries, uh, Valentine's Day, um, you know, Father's Day, Mother's Day. Uh, these are always around your experiences that you have uh, in and around a dining atmosphere. Uh, your wedding reception with a caterer, um, you know, your, uh, even funerals have wakes that often have food. Uh, throughout your life, uh, you are building your memories and you're building your life experiences around what you do around food and beverage. And that is something that has always interested in me and is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, because food brings people together. And mm. um, yeah, we've discussed that so many times. Like, it's like wh whoever has been in that industry that we've interviewed, they're always saying um, similar to what you are, Wes. It's just that hospitality. It's the fact that it connects people no matter where you're from, really. Mm. Has there been any um, dark moments along that uh, path that you've carved out for yourself, Wes? Dark moments. Uh, well, the, during the GFC, the global financial crisis, um, we at Pacific Restaurant Group, uh, at the time we had Kingsley's, had opened Chop House and had not yet partnered with Jamie Oliver. Uh, we had a restaurant in Melbourne on Flinders Lane that uh, failed uh, and failed pretty hard and um, cost the holding company $2 million. Uh, and that certainly was a dark time uh, in my hospitality career. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, you need a big failure in your life to understand uh, and uh, work through risks and to ensure that you've tried to mitigate risk as uh, best as possible. Uh, I was lucky. Uh, I was able to keep my position as well as my shares in the group, uh, but certainly um, uh, went through a bumpy time and a rough time for our company as well as uh, for the rest of the, the world during the financial crisis. So do you think that crisis that you've been through, that you have experienced, um, what, we're, what you're seeing now with COVID, um, at the end of that GFC, did you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I'm trying to get at to see, was there a light at the end of the tunnel then? And do you see the light of the end of the tunnel coming through here through COVID as well? Look, ultimately through my lifetime, I've experienced quite a lot of crises. Uh, on average, uh, the world experiences a major crisis about every five years. Uh, in the past 20 years, we've had 9-11. We've had the uh, terrible and devastating tsunami. Uh, we've had uh, a dot-com burst. We've had a property burst. Uh, we've had the GFC. Uh, and we certainly uh, have had some rough times uh, around the world. <clears throat> and we've had wars. We've had uh, lots of political strife. Uh, certainly have had some uh, interesting leadership changes, both in Australia and America. So I have uh, dealt with crisis my whole life uh, and ultimately come through on the other side and learned from it. Um, and one thing I credit with that uh, was my time in the military. Uh, I was a combat medic uh, and was uh, stationed in Germany and deployed to the Balkans uh, as a UN peacekeeper for six months and then came back to the Balkans as a combat medic uh, just a few weeks after that deployment. And uh, I've seen downrange. I've, I have been uh, fired upon, and I certainly do understand uh, 
the crisis nature. Uh, a pandemic is a major crisis, uh, both on a uh, country and world level. Uh, but ultimate, ultimately, this too shall pass. Uh, we certainly will be faced with uh, much more uncertainty, uh, as, you know, as well as the inevitable expectation that there will be some type of third wave. Uh, we don't know where that third wave will occur. And hopefully the state governments will be able to suppress that with tracking and tracing as well as um, uh, cluster management. Uh, but uh, we will be in the COVID crisis for the foreseeable future. And it will be very important that when a safe and effective vaccine is made available, uh, that we uh, get as high a vaccination rate as possible. Uh, otherwise, I can see some very, very uh, unfortunate restrictions remaining in place. Uh, if there is a high percentage of Australians that refuse to take a vaccine. Wes, you've had a really exciting and diverse career, like from investment yeah. banking, um, <laughs> in the military. It's, it's all really exciting. Um, who do you credit um, for your success? Because I guess behind every successful man is always like somebody, somebody else or a, a group of people. Um, who would you say have been um, contributing to your success? Well, I've had many mentors throughout my life. I am a single man, so uh, so I um, I cannot credit uh, someone at home for pushing me along. Uh, I do have a five-year-old daughter, Grace, uh, who I dedicated my book to, uh, who certainly um, is uh, something that, that keeps me going now. Uh, but early in my life, uh, I had a grandfather who was one of the first employees of Frito-Lay. Frito-Lay is the company that makes Lay's and Doritos and many of the chips that you see uh, on the shelves uh, here in Australia. He was one of the first employees. Uh, he worked for uh, Ma Doolin and her two sons who were the founders of Frito, which is the original corn chip. Uh, and he worked in the second factory, which was in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and he ran every Frito-Lay plant uh, in America throughout his 35-year uh, career with the company, uh, and which ended uh, in an executive role back in Dallas uh, upon his retirement. And one thing that he always used to tell me uh, was, Wes, you need to keep your eye on the prize. Now, that prize for me uh, throughout my life has certainly changed. It's changed in every business that I've been in. Uh, it's changed in every role that I've had. But once I fix my eye on a prize, it'll be hard pressed that I don't get there. So you're pretty determined and yeah. focused. So what's your eye on at the, at the moment? moment? Besides us, of course. <laughs> Saving hospitality, one venue at a time. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Wes. Um, and, uh, you know, we really appreciate your time. It's, uh, I, I wish I could sit here and have a conversation about your time fighting in the army. But, uh, in, in, um, yeah, it's been fascinating. So... Um, we will share this uh, onto our Dawncast and share it across our platforms. Uh, and, um, yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks for your time, Wes. You are welcome. Okay. Hi. That's Wes, uh, Wes Lambert, CEO of Restaurant and Catering, joining us. Uh, I'm Di Lee from Dawncast. And I'm Cathy Ngo, also from Dawncast. Yes. <laughs> Make sure you click on that bell below and subscribe to our channel. And hopefully you help us uh, grow this new media channel. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.